Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm a host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Ehrenheim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We are so glad that you've tuned in. We're a collective who are interested in the intersection of biblical studies and theology. And that's what this episode is about. Chris Tilling's going to be interviewing Douglas Herring about his book, Resurrecting Justice. And I also want to say, if you haven't done so, you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, wherever you listen to the podcast. That would be very helpful to us. And um, also, I want to remind you that we have another podcast now called In Parallel, and that is hosted by Brent Strawn, and that podcast is about the intersection of biblical poetry and contemporary poetry, and it's a different kind of podcast to to, uh, our interview-focused podcast here on script and our other, other one called The Biblical World, and and that podcast focuses on the um, history, context, geography, and archaeology of the Bible. So we've got three podcasts, On Script, Biblical World, and now this new one called In Parallel, uh, playing off of the idea of biblical parallelism, uh, which is a hallmark of, of Hebrew poetry. And uh, that's a really, uh, I think, an interesting new podcast and, and creative And I think you'll really enjoy it. So do check that out. And if you're able to give it a rating as well, that will help that one get off the ground. All right. Thanks so much. And thanks, of course, to Ed Hackey for producing this episode and for all his hard work in that. So enjoy. Welcome to On Script. It is my pleasure to um, introduce Douglas Harrink. Uh, today. Um, I'm very excited about having him on. I've I've long wanted to have him on on script to talk about one of his books. Well, recently he's published an absolute beauty. I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you. But first, by, by way of introduction, Doug Harrink has been a faculty member at the King's University for nearly three decades. And during that time, he taught in the areas of historical and modern theology, Christian ethics, theology of religions, theology of creation, theology and science, and Paul's letters and theology, which is a uniquely broad scope, I think. And in the past, he served as a charter member and president of the Canadian Evangelical Theological Association and president of the Canadian Theological Society. He's an active uh, member of AAR, SBL, that's the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature, um, regularly presenting papers and planning panels and sessions. And in fact, it's together with Phil Ziegler of Aberdeen University we've had on. He co-founded and co-chairs uh, a group, the Explorations in Theology and Apocalyptic, which meets annually at AAR. I also had the privilege of presenting on one of those panels once upon a time, I seem to remember. I think it was on Phil's book, actually. Um he also currently co-chairs the Pauline Theology section of SBL. Um, he's regularly invited to speak in churches, academic conferences, and other public settings, and recently as keynote speaker for the 100th birthday celebration of Hungarian New Testament scholar, 
Um, oh, my, my boy was just outside there. Um, uh, this is Professor Professor Paul at Caroli Gaspar Reformatus Egitem. How do you spell? How do you say that? Uh, Reformed Theological College, anyway. And uh, in his scholarly work, he's works extensively at the intersection of Pauline studies and contemporary theology and philosophy. And actually, it's it's one of his essays exactly at that intersection of time and in Paul and politics was absolutely formative for me many years ago. Um, he, so he's, he's authored an awful lot of essays, but books, monographs, the, the commentary on First and Second Peter. Um, there's famous Paul Among the Post-Liberals, um, which was published back in 2003. He's co-edited um, some some books, Apocalyptic and the Future of Theology, Paul Philosophy and the Theopolitical Vision. And the book that we're going to be talking about today, Resurrecting Justice, Reading Romans for the Life of the World, uh, published with IVP Academic. And it's a tremendously rich book, wonderful resource for all levels, whether you're an academic, whether you're a church member, there's, there's so much here to chew. And as you, you shall see, um, and you'll hear in this session, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. So, um, Douglas, it's a joy to welcome you to OnScript. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, it's a real pleasure to um, have this opportunity to just talk a little bit about the book and um, appreciate the invitation to do so. So uh, thank you very much. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, this book is presented as a reading of Romans. Um, it's not a full-on commentary, uh, but it's a close reading of the text. Nonetheless, you're trying to follow the argument of Romans and what's going on. And why did this book need to be written, do you think? What's missed in the commentaries that you wanted to highlight in, in the book? Well, um, I mean, commentaries have uh, their essential role. They're, they're uh, typically uh, technical. They deal with the all the words and sentences and thoughts of uh of a given uh, biblical text, but uh, I, I uh, believed uh, believe that Romans uh, has a powerful message that I felt needed to be heard. Uh, so I, I basically wanted Romans to speak uh, the good news of God directly and not just obliquely, if you, you want to put it that way. Um, like I think if you're reading just a regular commentary, you have to make all the uh, associations and jumps yourself, as it were, um, into uh, current life. And I wanted this uh, book uh, to show how Romans might speak directly into our current um, social and cultural and political context. Uh, and uh, and that that might change how we live as Christians uh, and the church in the world. Wonderful. And, and you manage to do that, don't you, by setting a number of really provocative or rich or thought-provoking questions throughout um, to help the reader engage with some of those issues. Um, now, at the very beginning, you, you say, look, Romans is centrally concerned with justice. Usually we don't think of Romans, perhaps, in that regard. Um, other parts of the Bible, maybe. Um, but, but you're saying Romans is centrally concerned um, with justice. And justice that's manifest, that's revealed, that's defined in Jesus Christ. So to get going... And at the beginning of your book, you define a number of terms and, and they're really load bearing ones like justice, righteousness, nations, Messiah, apocalypse. Now, I'm not asking you to go through all of those, but um, maybe you could just walk us through some of, of those key terms and some of the most important um, things that need to be grasped in order to understand your book. Yeah. Um, so 
<clears throat> both in the first chapter and, and then um, uh, in a glossary at the end of the book, I do explain my translation choices uh, and some of the more important vocabulary that I use in the book. The most important uh, translation uh, uh, choice that I make is to take uh, the Greek dikstem words, that is uh, the, the words that begin with uh, D-I-K in English. Um, so, so we have Greek words like dikaiao, dikaiosis, dikaiosine, um, which typically get translated as um, to justify and dikaiosine as righteousness. Uh, I take those words and um, uh, pretty much exclusively translate them with justice words. Um, and, and sometimes that might seem a little wooden, uh, but, but nevertheless, I felt it might be important to make clear that um, for Paul, there are not uh, two sets of words, one that he uh, uses to uh, deal with issues of you know, personal righteousness uh, and so on and so forth, but and then another set of words that he might use to deal with social and uh, judicial and political issues. Um, he's got one set of words, and it seems to me that that set of words uh, for Paul's readers, um, I'm not saying it, that set of words wouldn't be heard in a, a more personal sense, but they wouldn't be heard to the exclusion of some of the more social, uh, judicial, and political senses. So uh, that, that's my key translation decision uh, there to kind of emphasize that uh, one can read uh, Paul's letter to the Romans uh, and hear a message of justice. But I also take uh, up other words such as uh, apocalypse. Um, maybe I'll, I can explain that a little bit. Uh, uh, but I, uh, nations, for example, I use the word Messiah because I believe it uh, it has those early Israel. Sorry, sorry, those those uh, uh, within Judea. It has the the um, political meanings and so on. The point, uh, the point of all of the decisions uh, of those major words is to move the reader into seeing um, that the message of Romans moves far beyond questions of individual righteousness and salvation. I take its message to be theological. Uh, in other words, I think it's emphatically about God. Uh, I, I take its message to have cosmic dimensions when Paul speaks of cosmic powers like sin and death and other powers. Uh, it has geopolitical dimensions. Paul is keenly interested in the destiny of Israel and the nations. Uh, and so unless you show this in, in the translations and vocabulary, readers will almost automatically slip back into thoughts about individual salvation and personal spirituality. And I'm not saying those are part of the picture, of course, but they're not the focal point. And I think uh, they're, they're actually quite far from the focal point. Lovely. Yeah. Um, as I'm working on a commentary at the moment and I, I'm absolutely with you on this. You know, you, we need to be, we need to make some translations strange again, I think, so that we can hear Paul again um, for the first time. And there's, there's one particular claim I wanted to ask you to unpack for us because you just said Romans is emphatically about God and at the beginning of the book you claim this I'm quoting from page 21 you say and that the good news is God the Holy Trinity and Jesus resurrected and exalted could you could you say a little more, more about that sure um for Paul I think everything hangs on God, what I'll call God's self-apocalypse um 
you know, we might say self-revelation, uh, but I use the word apocalypse because this captures um, in, in a rather startling way the, the dramatic um, entry of God into history, uh, not just to give us some truths about God or show us who God is, but this dramatic entry of God into history in Jesus Christ to fundamentally change history. Um, and uh, or in, in particular, to fundamentally change um, how history goes and how we might participate in God's work in history. So, so it's, uh, it, you know, that those first, the first sentence of Romans basically de declares um, the reality of God as that reality within which uh, everything else happens. And so, so um, God's self-apocalypse is God's own dramatic arrival into the scene of human history in, in the person of Jesus Messiah, uh, who defeats the powers of history in his death and pours out God's resurrection power into history by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and that not as a series of divine acts, but one single event. Um, and, and, and so that uh, singular event, which has, shall we say, these three names, Father, uh, Son, Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the event of the triune God reclaiming and renewing Israel, the nations and the whole cosmos. So, um, so, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's all about God. And if we find ourselves in that picture, which we do, it's because God has taken up all of um, uh, cosmic and historical reality um, into the work of Christ and the Spirit, and uh, is fundamentally reshaping um, our our understandings of participation in and the outcomes of all of reality. Yeah, wonderful. Um, now, I um, I think we could talk about this, couldn't we? Just that one sentence and and everything you've just expounded. We could t talk about that for the rest of this uh, podcast, I, I think. Um, but um, to 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 move on, because it's such a rich book, I, I just wanted to get into some of the other issues. And one of those is a really pedagogically useful device, as I've mentioned. You set these little questions every now and then, and 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 you ask one. Actually, I've been doing the same with my students when looking at Galatians, similar anyway. I, I ask them to, to try and explain the gospel using three phrases, works of law, uh, justification or justice or, or some variation on that and then faith or trust or something and ask them to explain the gospel using that vocabulary and you do something similar and uh, and and this is the question you pose you say suppose you were given out of the blue as it were the three words salvation justice and faith forward slash trust and ask to make sense of them together what would you say about them in two or three sentences now i i wonder what sort of answers you've heard to that kind of question and how you go about answering it. Well, probably like you, Chris, um, uh, when students typically answer that question, let's say at the beginning of a course uh, on Galatians or on Romans, uh, they will, they will uh, use words like salvation and justification and faith, um, primarily uh, in, uh, understood in personal individualistic ways. Um, uh, it's, you know, the question becomes, you know, how am I saved? And by saved, they mean, how can I be assured of eternal life uh, after I die? 
Um, by justification, they mean primarily how can I, um, despite my being a sinner, be right with God? Um, and, uh, you know, how can I have faith that that is true? You know, and I don't want to dismiss the importance of those questions. But um, what I do with my questions in the text boxes, uh, I think readers will, will soon notice that the questions there are quite unlike uh, the ones you'll find in most, let's say, Bible study type books. I ask very few questions about the so-called um, individual or spiritual life of Christians. Uh, I ask a whole lot of questions about their social, uh, cultural, and political um, enmeshments and commitments and expectations. And this is to get the readers thinking in uh, very different ways about uh, Romans and its message. As you just said, this might all come across as rather strange. I mean, you're asking these questions about Romans. Why are you asking these questions about Romans? Well, because I think Romans actually addresses those kinds of questions. And so, so the text boxes themselves are there to guide readers to ask different kinds of questions about what they're reading in, in Paul's letter to the Romans and, and to, to see that, those, uh, that, that the letter is addressing quite uh, profoundly different dimensions of human existence than typically we expect it to be addressing. Yeah, yeah. So you, to, to give the listeners some kind of idea, you know, we've been talking now about the Holy Trinity, about God, about theology, about exegesis, about what it is to read scripture. How do we understand the gospel? We're barely out of chapter two. Um, and, um, and the argument traces Romans through, the first part of the book traces Romans through. And in, in chapter three, you turn more to Romans 1.18 and following. And, and there you talk about sin in terms of systems and structures and, and the wrath of God as good news. So how do you think the wrath of God is misunderstood by by Christians as they read Romans 1.18 and following, and how would you like to see the issue framed? Yeah, well, I think uh, um, this is a, a term that uh, you've you've heard often, Chris, uh, and uh, I have from Douglas Campbell. Typically, we do a kind of forward reading of the book of Romans, and that forward reading um more or less begins at maybe Romans 1.16 and then uh, pops very quickly into Romans 1.18 and there we hear about the wrath of God and we understand the wrath of God to be directed, uh, first of all, in this rather universalistic way uh, against all individuals as sinners who stand before God, deserving effectively of God's wrath and punishment uh, and needing some kind of um, means to stand uh, before God um, uh, other than in terms of God's wrath, okay? So, so really it has a lot to do with um, God's anger towards me as a sinner or against uh, others uh, as sinners and God needing to punish uh, somehow or other sinners to satisfy his own righteousness. Um, I, I take wrath uh, very differently. First of all, uh, it seems to me that um, Paul doesn't, at least in Romans 1, 18 to 320, isn't, uh, doesn't say that God's wrath is directed toward the ungodly or sinners, but rather towards the systems and powers um, that hold peoples, cultures, and nations in bondage. So the first part uh, of uh, basically the rest of Romans 1 
18 to um, 32, uh, basically I take Paul to be uh, saying God's anger is directed at the idolatry, at, sorry, directed at, yeah, the idolatrous systems that hold uh, the Gentile peoples in bondage. And then towards the end of, uh, basically into chapter 3, he speaks about um, uh, about God's wrath against uh, the Mosaic law, not because it's bad, but because it functions in some ways uh, as um, a system of bondage, uh, pri- primarily uh, in the sense of being the way in which Israel sees itself and then also sees uh, others, being the lens, as it were, through which it sees itself and sees others and, and so on. So so I take those first three chapters to be God's God's work in Jesus Christ. And that's the thing. You see, you see what exposes these systems, idolatrous systems on the one hand and the Mosaic law on the other, as in some respects, systems of bondage, is the fact that God has revealed his liberating power in, in uh, Jesus Messiah. And so um, Paul, see, Paul then looks uh, from that lens out onto these systems and says, what is God doing in, in Jesus Messiah? He's liberating uh, people from those systems that uh, hold them in bondage. And so, so it's wrath against the, the enslaving systems, not wrath against each and every individual human being that God is speaking of there. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Now, so that's that's quite a weighty chapter. Just one chapter where you're dealing with all of these these issues, and and straight away, then you're you're tracing the logic through. In chapter four, you start to explore the relationship between being just and trust in God, in light of Abraham. And and you 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 make the case that trust and justice are not two things, um, but one. Um, now, on the one hand, I'd love to hear you unpack that just a little. But also, you know, if you read Douglas Moo, well, at least to a certain extent, and, and others, um, Abraham is seen as the best biblical example of the doctrine of justification by faith. You know, what what are you doing that's different? What do you think they've got right or wrong? Well, there's no question that for uh, Paul, Abraham is um, um, a, a key example uh, and if you want to use the word justification by faith, uh, the phrase justification by faith, yeah, he's a key example of that. But I take the phrase justification by faith very differently. So uh, once again, if we go back and take the Greek words uh, that get translated as to justify and justification and then as righteousness, if we take those words uh, as referring instead to God making history right again, then uh, God begins to make history right um, in and as Abraham trusts God's promise to do so through him and through Sarah. Um, and, and Abraham walks that trust. I, I, I spend some time talking about how Abraham, uh, you, you know, doesn't just trust. He walks that trust by leaving his land, by going to the land that God will show him and Ultimately, as Paul says in Romans 4, by his confidence that God will raise both his and Sarah's dead bodies. Okay, so, I mean, Paul's quite emphatic that their their bodies are dead with respect to the promise that God made to them. Um, their bodies are dead. They have no potential to bring about that 
that destiny which God has, uh, as it were, promised them. As I point out, uh, God says to Abraham uh, that Abraham will inherit the world, or, or at least this is how Paul understands it. Abraham will inherit the world. Well, you know, that's a massive um, promise and destiny. Abraham believes it and believes it by walking in that promise, okay? So, uh, and, and the promise is that God will bring justice, life, and healing to all nations through them. So, so, so that's what I'm, that's how I construe the meaning of uh, what gets uh, talked about as justification by faith. What's interesting is that, is that for Abraham, I mean, the results that he actually sees are, uh, are small. You know, he, he supposedly is going to inherit a land. In the end, he buys a little plot of, of land. Uh, um, in, in other words, the justice that God begins in Abraham's um, trust uh, is virtually invisible to the gaze of power and wealth and influence. And, and I think there's, uh, well, well, that becomes in some ways kind of the core message um, of the book, yeah. We should probably um, move on to um, the following uh, chapters when you're exploring Romans 5 to 6, um, because you shed all kinds of fresh light on, on important topics. Um, you speak of becoming the justice of of God, becoming slaves of justice, and things like that. And what does it mean in in this reading to become the justice of God? And how does this differ from more traditional, perhaps Protestant accounts of the doctrine of justification? Yeah, uh, I have to kind of credit. Um... Michael Gorman here uh, with some of his uh, key writings on Paul and justice. Um, so the phrase becoming the justice of God is a phrase that I, I learned from him. But in the first instance, this is the primary burden of uh, the latter part of Romans 5. Jesus himself is the justice of God. He, he, lives and enacts that justice uh, in his um, walk from uh, Nazareth to Jerusalem and uh, crucifixion. So, so Jesus in his life uh, and death and resurrection is the justice of God. That's effectively the, the, the radical declaration of Romans 5, 12 to 20. We become the justice of God through participation in the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does use some rather dramatic uh, metaphors in Romans 6. Uh, so, so basically our baptismal identity and participation uh, in uh, Jesus, whereby we become the justice of God, Paul says we then become slaves of justice. While we are delivered from slavery or bondage to sin and death, and become slaves of Jesus himself. Uh, and, and by that, he, he is simply wanting to emphasize the radical obedience that becoming the justice of God brings about in us. The, um, the distinction between the justice of God and the reality of Jesus Christ and, and traditional Protestants' accounts of do the doctrine of justification um, is one that I think readers of your book and I absolutely love wrestling with um, in these, these middle chapters. Um, but now that you've you've gone through a lot of the material, 
uh, in Romans 1 through to chapter 6, um, you turn to Romans chapter 7, uh, where, you know, obviously, because this is where Paul um, starts to speak a little bit more of Torah or law or how we're going to translate this. Um, um, into, uh, you unpick the meanings of justice and, and law. You speak of a weak law, um, a strong law, sovereign law in this chapter. Um, maybe you could just give us a little foretaste. What do you mean by, by these different phrases? And um, and I wanted to come back to some um, something you say towards the end of the chapter as well. Later. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, Paul is clearly um, intently interested in what the meaning of law is with regards to justice. Um, you know, if Jesus Christ is the justice of God, what then is the purpose of law? How you know how how exegetically well-founded this is, uh, I guess I, I still have some questions about. I found um, my work on Romans 7 very difficult to, to do. But by weak law, I just mean, you know, the ordinary, basically taken for granted habits and practices and rules, if you want to put it that way, that uh, all of us just automatically live by, mostly without thinking about them. Um, in, in our societies, in, in our uh, encounters with our neighbors, and so on and so forth. And, and so you might call that culture, you might call that uh, the social imaginary, which uh, a phrase that Charles Taylor uses. Um, you know, it's, it's just really all those habits and rules and practices and uh, assumptions that make life work and make like life, you know, usually work fairly well. I'm not saying that weak laws it's sinless. It isn't. But um, but but, you know, by and large, ordinary people get along in their daily lives and get along with their neighbors and even strangers and perhaps even enemies in their daily lives by um, by living according to these basic societal expectations. Uh, so I call that weak law. Well, strong law um, uh, emerges when weak law isn't sufficient, if you want to put it that way, or or, or when it, it clearly when there are lawbreakers or where there where there are antisocial um, activities, uh, practices, habits, and so on. I mean, let's let's just take the whole vaccine and masking thing as an example. Okay, you know, uh, in Canada here, I think we've got like uh, over eighty percent of adults and now children are getting vaccinated. Uh, vaccinated. Um, uh, but of course, we have about, uh, you know, we have a, a group of uh, anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. And, uh, you know, from, from uh, I, I mean, wh why am I vaccinated? Well, because because it's the smart thing to do. You know, it's a, it's a way to get along. Uh, it's a way to kind of normalize life again. And so we can get out there and be with our neighbors and our families and our friends and so on. Um, and, and so you just do it. But... Um, but also, as time goes on, the government says, look, it's a good idea for people to do this. We're going to increasingly mandate that people either get vaccinated or stay away from their friends and, and these kinds of things. Um, well, there you, see, there, there you see what might be just a kind of smart, normal practice uh, in the circumstances, developing into something that is a stronger um, and even perhaps enforced, it, it is being enforced in a variety of ways, not, not with punishments per se, but with restrictions. 
So there, there you see uh, law building up, right? Law because now we, you've got stronger law. So, so I, I mean, I have some people close to me who who are uh, anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, and and they see it as the government is enforcing this upon me, okay? <laughs> and um, I want I, I don't want to be forced to do this. Uh, so, so there you get this. Also, now, now you have a conflict arising, right? Um, and you get increasingly violent acts uh, of uh, by the anti-maskers. Mind you, at a certain point here, we had violent acts by maskers against anti-maskers anyway. So you get these conflicts arising, right? Um, and and, and at, at some point, perhaps you even get uh, penalties and punishments being imposed. And that, that's what I call sovereign law, right? Where, where, where uh, those in power uh, now begin to enforce uh, often with punishments or penalties, begin to enforce um, uh, these ways upon people. So, so it's a, a kind of trajectory here uh, that I think, uh, and and um, you know, I think Paul, on the one hand, will uh, I, I believe this is a burden of mine with respect to Romans chapter two. I think Paul kind of on the ground embraces what I would just call um, weak law. You know that. The, the basic operations of a social unit of a society of a people. Um, but I think Paul uh, ultimately in Romans 7 begins to worry about how law uh, grows increasingly into strong law and then ultimately into sovereign law. And it's all about uh, crimes and punishments and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just that to, I mean, this is this is you. You went there. You know, this is this this is. I think indicative of the book. You talk about things that are hot potatoes, um, just as you did there. I mean, as if we didn't have enough that's controversial to talk about. Um, it's it's brilliant that you went there, and and I think your style, in many ways, and I do I do mean this as a compliment, reminds me of of Bart's commentary but with more exegetical acumen. Uh, um, so if, if readers can somehow understand what I'm saying there, um, then then pick up and read. Um, well, and I, appreciate, sorry, I, I appreciate you saying that, Chris, because I'm not sure everyone's going to be convinced that the book is exegetical. But uh, anyway, um, they, they might uh, cast the same aspersions on it uh, that they cast on Bart's commentary. This is... Uh, you know, this is more about Bart than about Ro uh, Paul or Romans. But but anyway, I mean, I did it. So um. <laughs> you you went there. Yeah, and, and let's be honest, we're all reading Bart's commentary still, rather than his detractors. Um, now, um, you you then turn to Romans chapter eight and issues relating to the Holy Spirit. Um, I was going to read out this large passage at the end of. Uh, of chapter seven, but just go get the book. Um, is all I can say. Um, but in expositing Romans chapter eight, you have a lot obviously to say about the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, at one point you say, "Quote the prince or president or prime minister who says I am a Christian, yet makes history according to the controlling logic of flesh rather than spirit, does not in fact belong to the Messiah." but rather is the Messiah's enemy. This is exactly what I mean. You are going for these issues and speaking clearly about things in, in ways that many will find jarring, others will find exciting. 
Um, but let me just ask you this question off, off the back of your work on Romans chapter 8. What does it mean to live a spirit-filled life? Well, maybe that's maybe I answer that question in the rest of the uh, in, uh, basically from uh, chapters 12 through to uh, to the end of the chapter. It, it, it means to live uh, it means to live a life that looks like the pattern of Jesus' own life. And, and so at crucial points in the book, um, I uh, leap out of the Romans text and refer, for example, to gospel texts, to the temptations of Jesus, to, um, to, to the way in which, in which Jesus act, enacts his own messianity. Which which ran against the gr the grain of uh, many of the typical understandings of messianity in Jesus' time, and and sometimes you know people construe the difference between uh, Jesus' messianity and the messianities of the time is that Jesus' uh, messianity was spiritual and and the other messianities were um, were political, right? Uh, what I suggest is that what Jesus enacts is a political alternative to the typical lordships, prime ministerships, presidential presidentships, you know, a political alternative to those. What does it mean in light of that to live by the spirit? It means to, it means to live and uh, trust and um, enact an existence that is patterned after his. Uh, after that, after that, um, after that political trajectory, if you want to put it that way, and 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 um, and th th that's why I kind of pick out the rulers of this age, as Jesus himself did, right? Uh, how do the rulers of this age rule? Well, they rule basically by uh, dominating and enforcing, and uh, uh, often punishing, and um, uh, warring against their enemies, and so on and so forth. And, and sadly, Christians often opt into that whole way of being in the world or thinking at least they have to put their confidence in those leaders who, who live that way uh, as effectively their political responsibility. And um, I'm saying the spirit that life looked at politically is quite profoundly different from that. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I this. Really, there's so much to unpack here. Um, but we, I, let's come back to some of this, perhaps, um, uh, time willing. But um, turning to Romans 9 to 11, it just struck me. It probably shows something of my own background. Um, but I found always Romans 9 to 11 quite difficult to follow and understand. Um, and so just a general question for you, really. What was the most difficult part of this book to write? Well... I've worked on Romans 9 to 11 a lot over my career. And, and so in some ways, I was, as I was writing that, I was uh, more confident about what I was doing there um, than about some other sections. I, I think I've already said I found Romans 7 very difficult. Um, you know, in the back of my mind, um, our mutual friend Douglas Campbell's uh, reading of Romans 118 to 320 was always playing okay <laughs> uh, and uh, so so I have to say I, I think I went through three drafts of that chapter on Romans 118 to 320. Um, first of all, to a certain extent, I think buying 
into Douglas's reading. And then, you know, progressively just kind of, what shall I say, working my way out of that and trying to silence his voice in my head with another with an alternative reading, which is which isn't totally different from his. The person who just took my position at uh, the King's University is a student of his, Andrew Rilera. Apparently, while well, he wrote his dissertation, I, I plan to read it over the uh, Christmas uh, break, um, basically further substantiating Douglas's reading of uh, those chapters. And so we, we have a conversation to have at some point. But anyway, I, I took a slightly different path from Douglas on Romans 118 to 320, but always with him uh, kind of speaking in the back of my head. And that was difficult, I have to say. Because he's a force, right? And and his readings are a force, and so yeah, that was that was the hardest that was the hardest uh, section for me to write. Uh, well, we had Andrew, by the way, on on script um, a few weeks ago, um, and uh, I've got to say his work I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed. So yes, we're looking forward to seeing that published. Now, quick fire round. Um, now this is um, where we just pose questions and ask for your immediate response. Um, so be interested to hear. Uh, what you have to say to this. So, most interesting systematic theologian at the moment, who would you say? Oh, <laughs> I don't see those on the quick fire round. No, no, um, yeah, you don't You don't get to see them, yeah. Um, Catherine Sondreger. I, well, I thought you were going to say that, funnily <laughs> enough. The best commentary on Romans. It's going to be Michael Gorman's. Ah, going yeah. to be, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but... I love where Michael goes um, uh, in his readings of uh, Paul, and so I'm expecting uh, that to be a wonderful commentary. I mean, you know, there's Karl Barth's commentary on Romans, um, but that's a thing all in its own right, and I would recommend anybody to read it. Um, but in terms of more recent ones, I would I would promote Mike's book. Well, I thoroughly uh, look forward to reading that. Is there, is there an opinion? It's hard to believe because you're fairly outspoken. Is there an opinion that you can share now because you're emeritus that you couldn't have done before? <laughs> um, you know, I have to say, um, Chris, that um, at at the King's University, I was allowed all all kinds of liberty. Nobody was looking over my shoulder and saying, uh, are you saying that you can't say that? Um, you know, it was, it's, it was a wonderful place to, uh, teach. And I never had a sense that there were things I wasn't allowed to say there. Well, thanks be to God for that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, it, it really was a wonderful uh, and is, I, I mean, I still teach uh, a course, probably a course of term for the next little while, um, courses I get to choose, and uh, it, it's a fantastic place to uh, teach theology. What's a fun fact about you that, that maybe most don't know? Well, uh, I love birds, and I love cooking. Uh, maybe people know that. I don't know, but uh, these are two of the things I love. We have, uh, I, I've got Quite a few bird feeders outside of our uh, very large kitchen window. Well, actually, several kitchen windows. I've got them out there. And um, particularly this time of year, it's about minus, uh, I think it's about minus 
22 Celsius here right now. Goodness and me. the birds wow. are just flocking to the feeders to get keep their energy up, right? Uh, so we'll just get to see all kinds of birds out here. Um, but I love to cook, and yeah. And finally, if you had to live somewhere in Europe, where would you live? Um, maybe Scotland. <laughs> That's a good choice. Yeah, it's almost, it's, as, cold. It's almost uh, as cold. I think the days are actually short, shorter in the winter because, uh, believe it or not, um, Edinburgh is further north than Edmonton, um, it, you know, in terms of meridians, uh, was meridians or whatever. Anyway, it's, it's further north. We, when we were visiting, uh, in December, quite a number of years ago, we realized that we had about six hours of daylight in which to explore the, the countryside, you know, and here we've got, right now we're down to about seven and a half hours. Uh, well, maybe we had seven hours there. We're down to about seven and a half hours of daylight here um, in the winter. So. Yeah. And longer in, in the summer, the days as well, which is a, a benefit. So anyway, to part two, um, and uh, I'm aware that we are running out of time, um, but um, still there are some things that would be good to um, ask you. Part two of the book is entitled Messianic Life. And and uh, although you're going through Romans 12 to 16, uh, you, you're starting to draw together, I think, a lot of the threads of your exposition of Romans earlier on. And uh, one of my favorite Bible verses, actually, is, is Romans 11.32. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Um, and um, you return to this verse at various times in, in part two. And what, the first one, I think it was anyway, at least in my read, um, is um, on page 160. And, and you say this, justice is not given to messianics as an agenda, but as the gracious gift of sharing through trust in the divine life of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the God whose justice is mercy. Um, so I, I do enjoy reading that. Now, can you say then a little bit more about the relationship between mercy and justice well, that you've equated here? Sure. Uh, so maybe the first thing I should just explain is I used the word messianic rather than Christians. Once again, just to uh, make the word strange, uh, but also to say that um, the life uh, of those who are taken up through baptism into participation in Christ is a messianic life. That is a, a life pa patterned after Jesus, the Messiah. And, and so, I, I mean, maybe that's just a good segue. Uh, what kind of justice do we see enacted by uh, Jesus, the Messiah? Well, it is, it is a justice as mercy. You, you know, at the end of uh, Romans chapter 11, that is Paul's conclusion um, at one time or another, uh, the Gentile peoples were imprisoned uh, in disobedience, and Paul means imprisoned uh, in the sense that God hands over the Gentile peoples to their idolatry until such time as Christ comes. Uh, but also he su su suggests that uh, the Judeans or Jewish people were imprisoned as well under law. So, so, uh, but, but ultimately, the point of all of that is so that all might be liberated from those enslavements, um, which is the mercy of God. So, ultimately, God's justice, which we often 
you know, I think people are afraid of the notion of God's justice because we see it as uh, that's got to be punitive somehow or other. It's got to be about penalty and punishment uh, and perhaps uh, ultimate uh, exclusion from um, the, the realm of God. That doesn't seem to be Paul's understanding. Uh, if if there are these spaces and times within which we have experienced enslavement uh, under the powers that has not been apart from God's uh, overarching purposes, but the ultimate goal of all of that is that God might um, uh, exercise his liberating mercy and free all human beings for uh, their share in the divine life. So uh, that's ultimately, I think, what it all comes to for Paul. And I, um, I think this is where it's quite exciting for me. So many will see, as you say, justice as punitive, justice as the problem that needs to be resolved by Jesus. But as you argue throughout, justice is the content of the gospel. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17, which necessitates a reimagining of what we mean um, by justice. Now, on page 170, so it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but you say that Paul does not have a grandiose vision of the messianic body politic bringing about world peace. So I've got to ask you, are you saying that Paul would make a very bad beauty pageant? I think in, in many ways, Paul would make a very bad <laughs> beauty, beauty pageant contestant. <laughs> We're, we're given to believe that maybe he wasn't the, the most handsome person in the world and uh, maybe even somewhat uh, looking rather beat up. Um, so there's that. Uh, but but there's also the thing that, uh, as you quote, clearly Paul envisions um, an ultimate end of world peace. But he's not going to be the one who's going to bring that about. He's going to testify to the one who will bring about world peace. And, uh, and, and so that's also basically what it means for messianics or Christians to um, become the justice of God and become slaves of justice, is that we, we testify to a justice that uh, God has done and is doing that we aren't capable of bringing about. So our primary, our primary justice task is to uh, witness to the justice that God is bringing about uh, in in uh, Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, thank you. I mean, that's, um, but but just in case anyone didn't get it, yeah, Paul wouldn't win a beauty pageant contest, uh, contest so cutting edge scholarship here uh, and on script. Now, um, Romans 13 is, you know, the first seven verses anyway, the not notoriously difficult text. Um, now, in light of your reading, what does Paul mean when he says that the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason or that they're God's servants, agents of wrath, at least in one way of translating it, to bring punishment on, on the wrongdoer. I mean, how do you how do you handle all of that? You know, um, early on in the letter, Paul speaks about um, uh, God handing over uh, the Gentile peoples to, the, to their gods, to their self-chosen gods, uh, as a kind of holding pattern as a kind of way in which uh, you, we might even say that God preserves those Gentile peoples in their uh, in their languages and cultures and so on, until uh, until the time of the Messiah. 
I, I see in some sense uh, Paul saying something similar here about the ruling authorities. Um, you know, God, uh, again, doesn't simply abandon the world uh, to its own devices. So God continues in some respect to work through rulers and powers uh, and authorities to maintain uh, a modicum, shall we say, of um, good order in society. But but I do not take, uh, I'm very emphatic in, in my discussion of Romans 13, that I do not take these ruling authorities as those agents on which Christians should depend or which Christians should throw their support behind to bring about God, God's um, work of justice in the world. It's, so it's, it's really all about faith and loyalty and hope and expectation. Do we throw all these things be- behind certain governments or certain political parties or certain uh, political movements? Or do we throw all of those things behind uh, the reality of Jesus Christ and um, God's justice working out in the world uh, through Christ and the Spirit? And so so the, really, uh, core to my discussion of Romans 13 is that, is that we be, should become unbelievers in the political powers and parties and rulers of this world, despite the fact that Christians throughout the centuries have so often thrown their belief and hope and trust and expectation in those powers. And there's so much that I wanted to talk about here. You you end up um, promoting a, well, you challenge, you know, what you ask, what do messianics owe political authorities and, and institutions? You're going to say things that that um, won't gel, in at least if you're American, with Republicans or Democrats, with left or right. Um, you, you're you're presenting what you call a messianic anarchism, and I'd love to get into that, but we are running out of time. So, I wanted to just finish with a, a couple of more general questions, and if you could, and this is one I, I like to ask um, people, just cold. If you could witness one major change in academic biblical studies or, or systematic theology over the next 30 years, um, what would it be? Hmm. You know, in, in biblical studies, I, I think uh, we're seeing um, more and more turning towards, let's say, commentaries that communicate into our situations. Now, and, and don't get me wrong, again, I think some of the technical commentaries are absolutely crucial. But, you know, we get ever-growing numbers of them on our bookshelves, each becoming uh, fatter than the one before and uh, more technical and so on and so forth. And, and we, get, we, we, we don't get enough communication of that to ordinary readers. Now, now I've been told that my book, uh, you know, I targeted toward ordinary readers. I've been told that my book might be still too difficult. But, but, but my aim is to com- communicate into the current situation of, you know, Christians reading Scripture, reading books on Scripture that uh, will, will, will allow Scripture to um, come alive and, um, and work its way uh, in, in the modern world. So, so with biblical studies, I think that's crucial. You know, um, at, at the beginning, you s- spoke of all the things that I've taught over the years. That's because I've been in a very small institution uh, and had to, have had to cover a wide range of uh, courses. 
so I guess the thing, I, the other thing I would say about systematic theology, same problem as with biblical studies. It gets very, very technical. And I just wish that uh, theologians would spend a little more time um, speaking directly into um, our, our contexts and, and using their, their talents and skills and brilliance to, uh, to help Christians, ordinary Christians, live their lives. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. As someone who's writing a commentary at the moment, I take that um, to heart. And finally, what, what can we expect from you in, in the future? Well, I've got a few ideas, but right now, uh, and I'm, I'm not, don't hold me to this, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping to write uh, a, a relatively, not a fat book, a relatively accessible book on um, theological orientations for Christian scholars. That is for Christian scholars in universities, probably mostly Christian universities, but, uh, but not not just. Um, and, and so I want to um, say something about what theology does and uh, can do and ought to do for scholars who aren't theologians. Well, that brings us to the end of this fascinating discussion. All I can say is we've, we've skimmed the surface, truly skimmed the surface of resurrecting justice, reading Romans for the life of the world. Um, by our guest um, today. Thank you so much for coming on to One Script. Thank you. And so this is um, Chris Tilling interviewing Doug Harrink, signing off. You've been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.